everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I am Katherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is here with me. And today we have a really cool guest. His name is Brian Fox. You may or may not know who he is, but I can guarantee you he has affected your life directly in some way. Or maybe indirectly. Okay, that's fair. You know, we have a lot of topics to cover and, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I wanted to remind everyone that we have a website and it is at reality2cast.com. So please visit us there. You can do things like sign up for our newsletter. You can read supplementary information. We include a lot of links with each episode and we have a few blog posts. Um, yeah, and you can get in touch, which is also welcome. And thank you also to our Patreon supporters and our coffee supporters and our supporters of all sorts. We really appreciate it. And uh, especially Steve. Steve, I hope you're listening. We really appreciate you especially. <laughs> We'd like <laughs> to we thank our whole, listener. <laughs> we'd like to. Yeah, that one guy. You know, we have a few. We have a few. Uh, I'll, I'll name some others next time. Um, so yeah. So so with that, uh, thanks, Brian, for, for joining us. This is actually really cool. Um, I think my coworkers are going to think I'm extra cool after this. Uh, you know, because we all we all depend on on Bash quite a bit in our day to day, and and yeah, we can talk a little bit about that. But but I think you have uh, some more recent interesting projects that we want to talk about as well. So I'll let Doc uh, kind of take over and and I, actually, I just like to start more. where so uh, people know we had you on the uh, the other uh, podcast. Actually, the Catherine and I are both involved with uh, uh, on Floss Weekly. And after it was over, I brought up the fact that you're from a very musical family and you, in fact, are a musical guy. So I kind of like to start there, like, you know, y y your own kind of non-tech background. And if there's a, a tech connection, that'd be cool, too. But we didn't cover it on the other one, so we want to be non-duplicative here. And, you know, so tell us all about right. that. Well, and if first you wouldn't of all, mind, sorry, if you wouldn't mind, maybe if you could give a quick one down for our listeners who may be a little bit less techie. Um, well, and we tell us too. just kind of it's kind of the, the bullet list of what you're most known for. So uh, my name is Brian Fox. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, I am an open source and free software advocate and a fitness expert. So if you have, oh, right, this isn't video. So that joke didn't go over. <laughs> <laughs> Take I'm it on faith. The, the dude looks great. He really does. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I started off in uh, technology in the early 80s. It's easy to look me up on Wikipedia and then you can see how old I am, but I never say it out loud. I make people look it up. Um, and, uh, and in 84, I, I met Richard Stallman in 85. The Free Software Foundation um, started Project GNU and I was the first employee of the Free Software Foundation. And uh, while I was there, I wrote a bunch of software. Uh, one of the pieces of software I wrote is called the Bash Shell, which is used on essentially every computer on this planet and on a couple of computers that are not on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. uh, Mars helicopter is running the bash shell. So, um, so that's been an exciting, an exciting highlight in my life. I waited around 30 years or so for that to uh, kick in, but it's been good. Um, other pieces of software I wrote that people may have heard of. I was the maintainer of Emacs, not the author, but the maintainer of Emacs for a couple of years. Um, I contributed to the GNU C compiler, the debugger, um, and a bunch of other stuff. I wrote the tech info uh, documentation system. So make info and tech info and all that stuff. That's what I did back then. Then in the 90s, I did some other stuff. 
like I worked at Wells Fargo as a consultant for a little while and wrote their um, online banking system. That was the first bank in the U.S. to go online, and that was uh, fun and exciting. All the other banks wanted to wait to see if Wells Fargo would get ripped off. Uh, that didn't happen, I'm happy to say. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in the course of doing that, I realized um, there were no good, uh, efficient ways to write database-backed um, websites like the ones that we're used to today. Uh, and so in the fall of 95, I wrote a web-based programming language called MetaHTML. It was all server-side, and it looked like HTML and Lisp combined. And, uh, and several people became millionaires buying that in the late 90s, using that tool to, to build their stuff. Um, and then in the 2000s, I decided I wanted to, I did a couple startups and I decided I like to do startups all the time. So I started an organization uh, which is currently called Opus Logica, which simply uh, invests technology into startup uh, organizations and takes out equity instead of charging them dollars. And this keeps um, all of us aligned and it lets them know why I'm yelling at them when I don't like what they're doing. And it, it helps us to make good products and move forward. So uh, I did that right up until, and that's still an ongoing thing, but in 2017, I had an idea for a um, privacy-based network, and I drew a picture of it on a whiteboard, and then about three months after I'd done that, the Orchid Labs organization came into being, and we had raised money from institutional investors like Sequoia, DFJ, uh, Andreessen Horowitz, et cetera. And um, that's Orchid. Orchid is now a tokenized cryptocurrency-backed overlay network that um, allows for anonymity and privacy and communication. I hope nobody fell asleep during that. No, no. It's, uh, how, how could we? It's, uh, it's, it's so much. And, um, and you still haven't touched on music. So um, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll go back. I'm going to force you back on that one before we go to the go to technical. Sure. I'm actually, I'm thrilled to talk about that. So my, my dad's name is Herbert Fox, Herbert Leon Fox. And he, when he was young, he got a degree in composition from Boston University. And while he was at Boston University, he uh, met my mother who was getting her PhD in philosophy. And then uh, my dad couldn't make any money playing music. And he, he went out, this was in Boston, sorry. And he went out to uh, California to see if he could make money uh, doing something in California. Uh, he still couldn't make money playing music in California, but he then just lied about his experience and took a job as an engineer. Huh. <laughs> and then the other engineers rather quickly realized that he had lied about his experience and gave him some pointers and started to teach him uh, more about engineering. Now, my dad's a very sharp guy, and he picked all that stuff up really rapidly, uh, eventually got a job offer from Bolperenic and Newman. I think he was employee number 13 or something like that, and started doing um, acoustical physics work at Bolperenic and Newman, which he did for a dozen years or so. Uh, later on in life, when he was about 75, he decided he wanted to get his PhD, so he went and got his PhD. He'd already been an economics instructor. He'd been a music and physics combined instructor. That's a special class he put together for uh, high school in Lynn. He'd been the organizer for um, the union at General Electric in Lynn. Um, 
there's um, a there's a bunch more things that he's done, and he's he's still around to tell us about them. I'm super happy about that. Um, wow. But how yeah, old is he? So that was, how old is he now? He'll be 92 in January. Wow. And his father, wow. his father was a commercial artist. Um, his claim to fame might be that he uh, made drew the Monopoly Man, the character that you see on the board, Mister Moneybags. That's yeah, yeah. that's drawn by my grandfather on my father's side. <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And then my aunt, who unfortunately recently passed away at the age of 92, uh, she was also a professional artist, but not a commercial artist, a, um, the kind that hangs things in museums. And her, her last name, of course, was Fox, but she married a guy whose last name was Wolf. And, <laughs> and then her name became Fox Wolf, and her children's names are Fox Wolf. So that was, that was also interesting. <laughs> anyway, wow. my, my oldest brother, Danal, uh, is a musician. He's a contemporary classical composer who uh, was composer in residence at the St. Louis Philharmonic. He taught um, at MIT as a visiting professor for two years straight, which is a kind of a singular honor. Most people don't get to do two years in a row. He's a MacArthur Grant winner. He's written the pieces that have been performed by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He has conducted the BSO and he performs, uh, he performs out with his his hybrid classical jazz uh, duet or trio, as it may be on any given time that he feels like wow. doing that. And and he too has a Wikipedia entry, I should point out. So oh yeah, for those who uh, are, are following along on right. on audio there. Right. And and I'm, and, and I'm a bass player. And you play bass. I'm Very a bass good. player. I've, I've been playing bass since I was 12 years old. I started making money at it when I was 16. It's what I did for uh, for half of my living for more than half of my life. And I've played with a rather well-known jazz musician and also a bunch of top 40 bands here in Santa Barbara. So <laughs> I just it's, like playing the bass. So how many times have you played at Soho? Could you count? Uh, 75. <laughs> That's our club in town <laughs> in yeah. Santa Barbara. Yeah, I had a CD release party at Soho back in uh, 94. Wow. Yeah. There's a, uh, uh, for the listeners, uh, um, uh, Brian and I are both citizens of Santa Barbara, though he is actually there while I'm in New York, wishing I was back. Right. But yeah. So do you see a connection between um, music and tech for you? Uh, it clearly, it may have made it easier for your dad to slipstream into... Uh, physics or whatever. I I wouldn't use my dad as an example of something that might be normal, <laughs> but but I would say that that all of the analytical computer people I know, all of the analytical people I know in general, do something with music, whether it's a hobby, or whether they've actually tried to make a living at it, or whether they've incorporated it into something they're teaching or something they're discussing. So yes, I think there's a strong correlation between um, problem solving, analytical thinking, and uh, composition, musical composition. So, uh, go ahead, uh, Catherine. No, I, was, I was a huge choir nerd when I was young. So, I mean, I guess that, that does make sense. I even mm -hmm. I took a music composition class. I have composed music. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah, maybe go. there's a connection. Do you sing bass as well? You've got a uh, a great voice. So, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, uh... I, I like playing the bass too much to sing, and then everybody wants me to <laughs> sing, and so I, I kind of don't. And then when I start paying attention to singing, my bass playing suffers. So, I you know, 
They're so no, no, you you won't catch me. You won't catch me singing. Yeah. Happy birthday! You can catch me singing. Happy birthday. <laughs> uh, so, oh man, there's so many questions I, I could ask. So that you've, you've, there's something we didn't touch on here, which is uh, voting systems. You've you, yep. I know you have an interest in that, and uh, you, you co-wrote a piece on open source and voting systems. Um, t- tell us about that because I think there's there's an assumption that's easy to make on the part of those buying those systems that it's good to have a company doing them and having it closed and just sort of trusting them to do it right. Um, and if it's open, oh my gosh, the bad guys can come in and hack it, hack it all over the place. So what's, oh, what's your answer? Oh, Doc, I that? was so calm. I was so calm. <laughs> now you're just going to rile me all up right at yeah. the beginning of the podcast. Okay. I, I, I actually have a funny anecdote that might be good right here, um, yeah. just quickly. And we mentioned it on a previous episode. Remember the previous episode where we were talking about uh, the solar winds attack? And we looked yeah. up a blog post where they called open source eating with a dirty fork. <laughs> and we had a lot of fun with that. And um, I don't know. I thought that right might be a really interesting yeah. uh, thing to mention just as you go into whatever whatever is going to rile you up even more. Uh, <laughs> so with a dirty all right let's we'll stick with some <laughs> historical facts maybe that will maybe that'll help keep me on the even keel uh i've been involved in open source voting since about 2007 um i've been connected with uh, brent turner who is what i would call the best wrangler i know for getting uh, uh legislators to pay attention to this important issue I communicated with alan detchert early on uh and in fact the system that i promote the, the type of system I like to promote, although it's very modular, is kind of based on the Deckert design. And so in 2007, I, I and my team at Opus uh, implemented a um, complete free software version of a, a election system. It had tabulation and voting booths and uh, recording instruments and everything you would expect. Um, we don't, for, for those of the people who are beginning to get turned off already, the generally the people who promote open source election systems are not interested in getting rid of paper. So that's pretty important to understand. We are not saying, gee, it would be great if everybody just voted on their phones and there was never any record except a digital record stored in a database somewhere or on the blockchain. That's not, that's not our belief. Our belief is paper ballots are sacrosanct. It's fantastic. But we have hundreds of millions of people casting votes here in the U.S., and efficient ways to track the results of that and to have high confidence that your vote is being counted as cast. Those are important things to us. And, and we know that software is a big part of making those things happen. So uh, we built this open source, uh, this free software election system. We ran it at uh, um, Linux, Linux uh, 2008. I don't even remember where it was. It might've been in Vegas. I can't remember. Where it was, but but it was good. It was fun. Uh, it was well received. Uh, people understood. We we thought we were all done there. Here's a reference application. Everybody else can just start with that and and make new applications, and we'll have open source voting. Little little did we realize that there's never really been a technology problem problem related to election systems. It's always been a political problem, and so since 2008, I've been focused on the political issues and not the technical issues. Examples of political issues are people saying open source is inherently less secure. 
anybody on this panel is welcome to discuss that at great length. <laughs> but I think we all know that there is no security through obscurity, that having a fewer number of eyeballs looking at something rather than a larger number of eyeballs simply means that things will be missed and there will be more bugs present and more uh, places to produce an exploit. So, uh, so that's one thing. The, to more directly address what you were talking about, Doc, which is, or maybe Catherine, sorry, which was um, a commercial company producing an election system. This is how we rule our country. This, we choose our leadership and our legislators, the people who make the laws for us. We choose them by voting. With, and the, the goal here has always been to be as, as representative of the wishes of the people as we can be. And in the very early days, I think it was very hard to have direct democracy. Um, there's too many people. You can't ask everybody in the country to raise their hands and count them. I think that some of the reasons we have representative democracy in this way, instead of direct democracy as far as elections go, may no longer be valid. But I don't know. That's a that's a question for somebody else. But I but I do know that this is an extremely uh, this is an extremely important function. This this infrastructure of election systems in this country, and I don't know why I would have a private organization be responsible for something that is so important to the public infrastructure of our nation. It doesn't make any sense to me. The board of directors of that company, they're. You know, responsibility is to is to have a fiduciary responsibility to the company, which may or may not have the right outcome for the election system for the country. They, they care about profits, which means they want to make the election system as inexpensive as they can while receiving as much money by selling it as they possibly can. These are not nonprofit organizations. These are private corporations building systems in order to sell them and make money. That means that they're the programmers they hire, no matter how good they are, there's a limit to the number of them. It means that they have the wrong type of thinking about the software itself. They think that um, making software proprietary is the way you hold on to profits. And I think we all know that that's also not uh, required and not true. So I don't see why I would want this infrastructure to be owned by a private organization when it could be owned by the public. And that would be true with a true open source set of election systems. Uh, and then individual states and jurisdictions can pick and choose from the things they want. They can hire private organizations to help them uh, install and set up that's completely reasonable. If I had a shop where I wanted to have 50 Linux boxes, I might hire a managed service provider to come in and set up my Linux boxes and recommend which hardware I should get and say what kind of networking equipment I should use and do, do all the installs. That's, that's fine. I would still be using open source software and I would still be paying somebody for the job they do to help me use it. So just quickly, I remember, um, an old friend of mine, Craig Burton, who was uh, one of the people responsible for Novell's success back in the 80s, um, once said to me, all technical problems are technical and political, and you can always solve the technical problems. You know, it's, a <laughs> it's not always possible yeah. to solve the political ones. Also, where two or more people are gathered, uh, at the, where three or more people are gathered, at least two are involved in politics. You know, yeah. and that, that this, uh, this also happens. But okay, so you use the term open source a number of times. 
as an old free software guy, do you have a problem with that? Do you, do you have a, do you go through an inner conflict or just, is it just depending on what tribe you're talking to, do you? Do you, a few you, a few months ago, I was I was in Boston and I went by the uh, AI lab to chat with uh, Jerry Sussman. And while I was chatting with Jerry Sussman, um, RMS came in, uh, Richard Stallman, and Richard and I are friends. You know that's that's how it is. So Richard sits down, he's eating some food. We're chatting about life in general and everything. And then I said the words "open source election system." Oh, wrong and Richard, place. And Richard started telling me that I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't talk like that. And I, I kind of lost it a little bit and yelled at him and said, you know, of all the people on the planet, do you really think I am the one that needs to be corrected right now? <laughs> so <laughs> so while, while I agree with Richard that free software is an, is an excellent term that clearly describes what we're trying to create, I will not fight the people who have decided to use the term open source. It's now become so commonplace that it has meaning for people, and I'm okay with that. If that's if that's how that works, that's how that works. So a quick follow-up on that, which is how how do we sell the GPL? Um, because I believe in the GPL. I think the GPL is a great thing um, in a different way in all of its versions. And, and yet, um, there are many developers I'm, I work with even, they just say, okay, it's just gonna be easier to use the Apache, the MIT, uh, some other more uh, permissive, they might say, license. And so how do you argue for that? Because it's really hard with business folks. The others are easy to understand. The GPL is a little harder. So I'm wondering, I don't even know if you want to do that, but I'm guessing you'd be adept at it. <laughs> I, <laughs> no one's really that adept at it. I mean, that's the problem. It's, it's almost, it's almost at the level of religion because many of the many of the thought processes are based in kind of a, a faith in the way things are supposed to work um, from both sides from from both sides of this question. Um, it's it's clear to me. I mean, so Doc, I got to say this because you know you said we're old timers or I got to say this. So it's it's clear to me that we won already. We've we've already yeah. won, right? Like in 1985, all software was proprietary. And in 2021, most software is not. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty of proprietary software, but there's this massive amount of open source and free software out there, right? Yeah, go in GitHub, yeah. Yeah, go Yeah, go to GitHub and take a look. And then think about what's happening with the current movement with cryptocurrencies and blockchain. All blockchain software is kind of, by definition, open source. That's, that's how these things work. I mean, people try. There are some people who try to go closed source, and then they talk to me, and then I yell at them, and then they go open source. And they, they realize they didn't need that. They were just kind of brainwashed by, oh, maybe institutional investors or, you know, some article they read in the past or something so so in some sense i feel like look we we want our, our, our free software is on the moon free software is in your computer whether it's a mac or a pc or a server there's free software everywhere so maybe i don't need to uh maybe i don't need to argue as hard as i used to but it's very easy for me to talk about the difference between free software and non-free software. And I don't believe, you know, MIT license and Berkeley licenses actually do what free software licenses are supposed to do, which is protect the freedoms of the people who use the software. So 
So that's a that's a belief that I have. I believe that people have a right to use software, that these things are really just idea, just an expression of ideas, just like a mathematical formula or I don't know, poetry. And poetry is a great example. You know, it's it's open source, it's free. Everyone can recite the poetry. Now, can I claim that it's mine? No, I didn't write it. Somebody else wrote it. But I'm certainly free to to speak the words of T.S. Eliot saying these are the words of T.S. Eliot. Mm -hmm. So why? I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. That's fine. I was going to say, well, so what do you think about, well, I mean, I I can guess what you think about all the the sort of trend in licensing where um, the kind of open core or, you know, source available or, you know, whatever the particular company wants to call it. But a lot of a lot of um, companies that had what I would call previously open source products um, have, have relicensed in a way that that restricts the use of their of their code. So, I mean, you can see it, it's it, the, the code's out there, but but they've licensed it in such a way basically to stick it to Amazon in most cases, I think. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I mean, that's that's I think what it boils down to. They're like, oh, Amazon's making a lot of money and we're not. So so let's ch- you know change this this license. And it's kind of it's like open source adjacent or something. So I think some people, some people um, are monogamous by nature and they get into a monogamous relationship and then something happens in that relationship and one of them says, oh, well, why don't we have an open relationship and that will allow us to just see other people. And then I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake because you didn't start off as an open relationship person. You started off as a monogamous relationship person and now you're thinking that you can just throw this other stuff in there. That's what I would call kind of BS. Doesn't really seem to work out. I'm happy to hear other people tell me I'm wrong, that it's worked out for them. But in general, I, I just think well, that kind of thing doesn't work out. And these people who say, oh, listen, don't worry. My, my source code is open to anybody who buys it from me or this piece that is meaningless is open, but, but not the special sauce. And then I say, yeah, you just, you're faking it. You're pretending you're in an open relationship, but you're not. So don't, so don't do that. You're, we don't have the benefits of open source. We don't have the ability for other people to build on the ideas that you've created uh, in order to make a better product for all humanity simultaneously. I mean, this is how we advance technology. I, <laughs> I got a lot of soapboxes, and you, you tweak all my bells. Oh, yes, I like you bring all my buttons. They're all good, and they're all good ones. <laughs> Uh, I hear the, the, for for me it's akin to you know I hear a lot about this. Well, so you're an artificial intelligence guy. Uh, you know, artificial intelligence is taking all our jobs away. You know, what are we what are we going to do when we have no jobs? And I say if we're going to celebrate. I mean, this is exactly what we're hoping for. The last thing I actually want is a job. I, that doesn't mean I don't want to do things. I love doing things, and I'm fortunate yeah. right now at this point in my life where I get to kind of just choose the things I do. So I play music, I write software, I work on, you know, free software election systems, I talk to Doc Searles, these are things I want to do. <laughs> and I and I don't have to do the things I don't want to do. And that's a, I'm telling you, if you haven't had that experience, it's a great feeling. And everybody should have that feeling. And that can be engendered by nobody having a job and having AI do everything for us. I think the whole idea with with a job. I mean, the, the word job, in in the non-biblical sense of the character yeah. Job, is it only came into use in around 1900. I mean, and the notion it, it's really a, an artifact of the industrial age when 
we took people and put them in machines and, and basically treated people as machine parts. And Taylorism was coming along not long after that, the scientific uh, method of, of, of production. And we all became machine parts, as it were. And, and your job was one of those, you know, and there's this assumption that, that you're going to behave like a machine part and go in there. A really interesting thing, there's several developments that I'd just throw at both of you just because I, I, I'm by noodling on them. You know, one is that, um, so, you know, my, uh, our son, who's now 24 and, and entered the job market, as it were, um, straight out of college. And then the po then COVID hit and has not worked in an office until now. Like he's back, right. he started an office, got kicked out of the office and um, he's had a couple of jobs since then. And now he's working, you know, at one that's in the office some of the time and at home some of the time. And his belief and his friend's beliefs are, why should you have to go in for work? And as a matter of fact, why is work even a job, right? Yeah. What, what is it about that? I mean, I, I want to do work. I'm glad to help out. I'm glad to do work. But organizing work around this thing called a job is, is really weird. And there's a lot of derivative dysfunctions that are around that too. Like for example, that your employer should cover all your insurance, right? So we, we have that because we assume that we always have to have an employer. But uh, you know, when, when a, a business may or may not have employees, it, 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 it's a much more fluxy kind of thing than it used to be. But here's the big one. Here's the one I wanna throw at you both. Somewhere between 40 and 60% of people post-COVID want to move where they live and or change their jobs. Mm. And my own experience with this is having flown now several times since the, you know, we were set free, is that when you run into people like at the airport, you know, like at, at United, they're looking at the kiosks, all the kiosks are out of order, and they're looking at it like, damn, that's too bad. You know, not, not like yeah. we're going to all get together and fix this. They don't want to be there. It's really clear when you're talking to these people, they don't like being back at work, you know, right. and, and that's, that's an interesting thing to me. I mean, there's, they're responsible there, but there's clearly something in the atmosphere that's changed. And I kind of feel like there's a connection to, to open source development, which both of you do. And I don't, um, which is that, uh, you're doing something that actually has results and it's not so much that it pays off it functions it improves functioning on a constant basis and that's a sensation one has in developing software that one does not have when standing behind the counter processing people's tickets you know I mean, maybe there's some of it you're making coffee for people every day and you find a bigger better way to make a cortado or a tall latte or something i'm not disparaging any form of of work i think all of it's heuristic enough that we can improve it on a constant basis but there's something about writing software i think that's modeling in a way where we're going in the in the world of employment that is not the industrial model i think we're moving toward a post-industrial model but it's not clear what that is yet mm -hmm. I'm processing. I, I, it's, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in it. So, you know, it's so hard for me to compare, you know, what did I, what I do on a day-to-day -day basis with what other people do. I, you know, I've done this, I've done um, work that one, I enjoy and, you know, and I, I, I get up in the morning. Yeah. Because they give me health insurance, but also because <laughs> of other reasons, you know, I, I like to make the thing work better and, and I want it to, to, I want to solve the difficult problems and, 
you know, I so think, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I think, I, I think the thing, I think the thing that Doc is putting his finger on is, is the, is for, humans like to add value. I mean, that's kind of yeah. what we do. Yeah. And, and there are some things you can do where you can quantify easily the value that you've added. And there are other things you do where that's not necessarily so. So if you're, if you're handing out, if you're a cog in a machine handing out tickets at the stadium, it's hard for you to see the value that you've added to humanity around you. It's very hard for you to, to kind of comprehend that. And if you're sitting at home creating a piece of software that makes it easier to process photographic images, it's in a sense very easy to see the value that you're adding. You can just quantify it. People couldn't do this before and they can do it now, right? This is a whole whole new realm of things. And so, I mean, I, mean, I would love to replace every cog with something that's artificial artificially intelligent or does not require uh, human beings to do it because I I 100% agree with you no one wants to be a cog in a machine. I personally have happily worked at um, fast food restaurants where my proudest moment is when I added the most value in that restaurant. I don't remember just flipping burgers but I do remember that that um, a manager and I ran a very busy McDonald's in Boston, the two of us by ourselves during a, a lunch hour, which was, uh, which was, I, I remember that as a very valuable contribution I made in the world of fast food. Mm. The people eating the fries were very appreciative. I would, I would imagine. And frankly, <laughs> the perfect French fry is a beautiful thing. I mean, you know, they, you can, the thing is, you can get nerdy about anything. I mean, you could probably get nerdy about the right way to take tickets at a stadium. You know, yeah. I, I, I could figure out a way to make that nerdy. But, you know, the French fries, you know, you can you can freeze them for 48 hours and you blanch them and then you re anyway, there's a whole there's an art to it. You know, you can get super into it. But, I, I you know, I think it's. Um, yeah. But, this, know, you know, but your point, your point is extremely is extremely important. You just pointed out there is a way that you can become nerdy about anything you do. And I would translate that becoming nerdy as as articulating in a way that you can visualize the value that you're adding. So when you become an expert at making French fries, well, then making French fries is an artistic and creative thing. And you're adding value to people's lives by making French fries. That's not a, a cog in a machine. You're adding a lot of value. I'm just saying. Well, well, Catherine, I need to explain. We'll talk about winemaking later. It's not really about the French fry making. It's totally about the dipping sauces. I mean, oh, okay. okay, that's yeah, good. Yeah, it's no, all about the sauce. That's good. All four of those sauces that they had. There's the barbecue and the honey thing no, and the not, mustard thing. No, not the and commercial the one, whatever those were. There's, there's no value in that in the commercial <laughs> ones. No, it has to be the ones that you make at home, you know. Yeah. Right, but have you ever had Whataburger spicy ketchup? <laughs> I mean, that is a commercial, but it is, it's a thing of beauty. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Whataburger. Whataburger spicy ketchup. <laughs> It's beautiful. <laughs> you can go further with Whataburger. <laughs> You've got that. Did you do, oh. I mean, I did radio. That's where I got my nickname. Did you do that in, in any of the places you were? Like a, <laughs> Could I do did what? Ever, did you ever do radio? I mean, you've got this great no, no. Uh, voice no. over voice. You should, uh, you know, it's not too late. You could do the voice Not until voice. now. <laughs> yeah, not until now. I've got to. You know, we, it's <laughs> give Brian some work. It's, you take call yeah, I need it. I need a job. So <laughs> I don't think we touched on the remote work aspect of this, though. 
Yeah, I think that's what you were originally asking about. You were originally well, asking about how people, 40% of people say that they're going to move. And I, you know, I, I feel privileged to do the kind of work that I could do from just about anywhere. Um, but I don't, I don't know if it's the type of work. And I mean, it, 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 the type of work lends itself to that, but I don't know if it has anything to do with the process of software. Well, let me, well, let me just ask you this question then, or, or actually each of you, <laughs> is it, is it more fun and, and more fun to work with your colleagues in an office? or more fun to work with your colleagues over Zoom? Mm -hmm. That's actually really tough for me. <laughs> I think I, I, think like I, I like a mix. I, I, I would like to have a mix, honestly. I think the best remote work scenarios involve probably at least a twice a year kind of retreat. There are a lot of companies that do that and I think they're they're doing it right. You get everybody together a couple times a year, have a lot of fun, but the rest of the time, you know, you kind of let them do their own thing. Um, because it, you know, again, our field um, really great for the introverts among us who like to roll out of bed, you know, maybe or maybe not brush our hair and show up and, and you know, not kind of be bothered and have a really quiet space to just, you know, hack through some, problem and, and and that kind of thing so so yeah i i, I see your I, I think you're trying to make the point that that or maybe I'm, I'm making assumptions here but i think you know what you mean is the human interaction part is valuable and and uh, desirable but i think um i don't know i think yeah. i like to... living in my cave <laughs> to, to me it's both i mean it, it it's it's sort of like um you know do you, you know, do you like turning right or turning left? Well, I needed to kind of do both, right? There, there's a um, uh, an interesting thing to me right now is that I'm involved in in a project. It's a software project, among other things, but it involves open source. And and because um, it's in pursuit of an idea that I and a few people had a few years ago that some people want to actually put to work in the real world, and some enthusiasts materialized in Bloomington, Indiana. My wife and I are going to move there. I mean, at least part time. We're going to. We just took out. A, 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 we just a rent on a condo there, and we were there for five days, two weekends ago, and spent a lot of time, you know, in a room with a blackboard, going over a bunch of stuff that is a lot easier to do in the physical world than it is elsewhere. It was really weird because it was on a university property that where they required people to wear masks indoors, no matter what, don't mm. get caught, right? And so. We're all talking like this to each other, and it was kind of weird. But anyway, but the and there were cicadas going outside, which were you know like 120 decibels of noise. Yeah. Uh, but the but the interesting thing is, you know, I want to be there on the ground as we put this stuff to work, right? That's the that's the interesting thing to me. It's like there's no substitute for actually being there, and and I think what we're going through is this sort of weird reconciliation between. The need to be alone, the need to be virtual, the need to be to have maximum optionality about who we talk to and when in a world that is both digital and physical. We, we are no less embodied animals than we ever were, and yet we have a much wider set of contacts that are much more purpose-oriented and purpose-driven you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, Catherine and I talk to each other a lot more now than we ever did. We were both working at Linux Journal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we started this podcast before that ended and we've kept it up. And but there's a, you know, that it's it, it satisfies a need. We've got a rhythm to this thing and it's important and it's we do it virtually. We don't have to be physically 
present with each other. You know, and, and there's, so an interesting thing happened. I, I have, I can't turn the camera here, but over here in a corner, and actually if you go to my blog, you'll see a picture of it, are 17 hard drives, among which about half of them are dead, or might as well be dead. They're Firewire or some older version of a connection that, that, that I don't have anymore to this USB-C machine I'm using now. Um, and if I just got a USB hub today from in the mail, there it is, there's my new USB hub. Uh, see, that's the top of the seven port hub that's over there. For the, I've been trying out the 17 drives on. I'm looking for a storage solution and I didn't, I can't, the cloud, I mean, when, when you're sphinctered to 10 megabits upstream, you can't really store everything in the cloud. I've got, I've got more than 10 terabytes of stuff over here. And I just learned that one of them, you know, Apple tells me, hey, this thing's a bad drive, get everything off of it now, right? And I'm moving it over to the backup drive that now will not be useful because I've put all of that over there. And I'm thinking, I gotta get on the cloud, right? But I, think, I only have 10 megabits up. So I test our speed. Suddenly it's 90 up. Yeah. They never told us this. And I think it's because we're all on Zoom now. I mean, it's like, I think I think the cable company just got tired of hearing complaints and thinking, why are we sphinctering this down to 10 megabits anyway? You know, I, there's no reason for that. Um, and the world needs upstream now, which we, those of us who are clueful said 10, 15 years ago, the market's gonna enormously expand if you have high-speed upstream, but nobody was listening then and now they are, right? Yeah. So this optionality has suddenly shown up and it's, it's bigger than it was before because now my mind has opened up. Wait a minute, I can go 90 up. What can I do now that I couldn't before? Now I don't know what I'll be able to do in, in, uh, in Bloomington, but I'll be also be at a university where that's, you know, a gig, you know, um, a gigabyte up. So it's not going to be so soon, you know, soon, soon enough. So yeah. uh, I'll tell you, Richard Stallman, Richard Stallman um, has there are a couple things that he's done um, in his conversations with me that have really just massively changed the way I think about everything. I was, I think, uh, 25 years old and I was running a piece of software and I said, oh, so um, I should just uh, buffer this and in, in, I'll buffer this on disk so that I don't have to have the whole thing in memory. And he said, why would you do that? And I said, you know, because the machines we're using only have this much memory. He said, you will never run out of memory. Stop thinking that you'll run out of memory. That was uh, 1985 wow. that he said that. He was wow. so right. Yeah, yeah. So early and so right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so the, I, the, problem you, the problem you actually have is that by the time... It's not going to be too far from now, but by the time the technology to move all your data as fast as you want to move it is available, we will have gotten rid of all the old things that move data slowly. So your firewire drives will just be thrown out. I have some cassette yeah. tapes. I have a reel-to-reel -reel tape of my mother speaking, and I'm trying to find some way to transfer that reel-to-reel -reel into some digital format so I can have it. And it's been very difficult to do because... There are no reel-to-reel -reel things. I have I, one at the house. I have one at the house in Santa Barbara. When you come I'm, over, I'm when, coming when, over. You, when you come over, we're going to do it. I, I, it needs a little work, but I, it, 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 that's it's fine. I'm, I can yeah. fix it. Yeah, it's an abandoned one. It's a, a quadraphonic one from the early '70s, but nice. it's functional. It's an nice. Akai. Yeah, <laughs> the Akai, we moved into this house, this empty house, and the only thing in the entire house was this reel-to-reel -reel deck on the top of, on the top shelf of a of a hall closet. 
That's cool. And, uh, and what's that? Have... What's the output of that thing? Is it like two RCA jacks or? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's two RCA. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually four RCA jacks. You only need two. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, don't worry because I'm kind of a hoarder. Somewhere I have a plastic bucket that has like RCA cables in it. Oh, I know? have. Because yeah, I just I, will not throw them away. I am going through. I, I could pick up the garbage can over here. I have Doesn't a whole bunch have of things. Everyone have that bucket. I, 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 I <laughs> have this. Isn't that normal? I mean, that's normal, it's, right? I don't, nope. It, nope. It's got normal. the one that goes to the Nokia phone from 1993. I mean, it's like the, you know, so many of those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case you want to charge that phone up again. Yeah, you know, there's, yeah no, exactly. there's no network that will support that phone now. No, no, and 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 the phones themselves are are, are in landfills and things. I mean, it's just a. I mean, one of the things I've, I've donated to Goodwill is this wonderful Nokia um, seven hundred model. We, we, we I reported on it for Linux Journal. It's this Linux. It's this little Linux, um, yeah. one screen thing, and it was so much fun to play with. I had it hooked up to a to a, a wireless GPS that all it did was receive GPS and did it on Bluetooth or something, and in this. Nokia Linux box that, that was put in your hand would pick it up, and I could now know where I am. Well, of course, my phone does that now. It's like, like both of them are useless. I'm completely useless. So, and the, the GPS thing just went into that bucket, yeah. and it's going to go to the place that recycles that kind of stuff because I want to, I want to be politically correct about that. You know, whatever that is. Well, well, we need to get your data off your FireWire drive before there are no more FireWire cables. Yeah. Or, or the I, other I end. I have the cables. Wire. I have the old Macs that it works with, and <laughs> uh, and, I, and and the truth is, once I hook them up, I'm going to see either a they're dead, or the fan doesn't work in them, or more likely, it'll be oh I have all that shit <laughs> have yeah. somewhere else, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's some that's actually written in in uh, in in a in formats that no longer exist, or they're you know in software that no longer exists. And I'm not going to bother with it. Um, but I actually want to ask you a question, a tech question, because yeah. you mentioned earlier that um, you did something that was like a cross between um, HTTP rendering or HTML rendering and, and Lisp. And yes. There's so many people that kind of worship at Lisp and don't use it in their everyday lives. What happened to Lisp? Everybody loved Lisp. There's, things, you know, every, there's so many nerds I know that say, I could do things with Lisp. Because, well, what the fuck happened to it? I mean, yeah. it's like... If it's so great, why aren't why aren't we using this thing? So and I'm not a programmer, so I don't know. It's like I know why we're not using Morse code. Okay, I, I don't I, know why we're not using Lisp, right. and I know Morse code, which is useless anyway. <laughs> okay, so so I I have the answer for you. It's it's okay. a great. It's nobody wants to hear it, but it's great. So <laughs> so there are there are essentially uh, two, maybe three languages, programming languages that are actually um, useful because they genuinely allow every pro let me back let me start from the beginning every program is an expression is simply an expression of an idea that's that's and that's all we do that's pretty much all we do as humans now is just swap symbols back and forth that's literally the only thing we do and somehow that creates value i still haven't figured that one out but that's that's what we do so every program is an expression of an idea so in order to express an idea usually you generate what we call a dsl a domain specific language for talking about that idea and everybody can see this if you're a photography buff you know all the special things you say in photography and if you're a computer nerd you know all the special things they say in computers and so forth there's always a domain specific language for that and and if you if you as a as a person want to explain something uh, that you truly understand 
just convert that domain specific language into like everyday speech and you'll see how simple it is the thing that you're doing even the thing even if it's powerful you'll see how simple the thing is that you're doing and everybody will understand you so that's number one number two the what programming languages are good then for writing software programs Oh, the ones that let you generate a domain-specific language to describe and solve your problem. Okay, well, all programmers are actually used to that. It's by it's what they do by naming functions or procedures. And they say, oh, I'll call this procedure, you know, add two to foo. And then that procedure adds two to foo, right? And they're very happy with their names. So the languages that are good for that are assembly language, Lisp, and Scheme, which is the dialect of Lisp. And not really that many others. C is okay. It has that property where it doesn't try to tell you anything except it lets you have variables and functions and you can make calls to functions. So that's useful. Um, all, basically, as my opinion is all other languages have an opinion about how you should express yourself and their opinion is guaranteed to be wrong. I have a creative mind and a, and a domain-specific language that I want to use to describe this problem and to solve this problem. And your opinion is getting in my way. <laughs> but that doesn't happen with assembly language, and it doesn't happen with Lisp or with Scheme. And what I find fascinating is when people say, well, you're writing in C, Brian. Don't you want to use an object-oriented language? And I say, I don't need an object-oriented language. I write object-oriented programs. Why do I need a language that is object-oriented? The language that I speak, by definition, is object-oriented, if that's the right, you know, tool to use to solve my problem. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, I'm reminded of a, uh, a Q&A back when Linus used to go out in public and uh, go to conferences and things, and um, somebody's asking him, well, why do, you, why do you insist on C? And his response was, because I insist on C. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like the as whole thing. You know, like, as reasonable yeah. as you're going to get, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the whole thing. As I said, there we are. You know. Yeah. Now, why seven? Because six is too few and eight is too many. <laughs> Usually, how that yeah. works. Yeah. yeah. So, so then your your question though was why did Lisp fall to the wayside? It didn't fall yeah. to the wayside. It's an excellent language for expressing oneself, and it doesn't have. Uh, an opinion or impose a specific structure on you, people will complain, well, what about the parentheses? But aside from the syntactical parentheses thing, it doesn't tell you how to write your programs. It doesn't force you to iterate using recursion. You can. It doesn't force you to iterate using some other method. That's up, that's up to you. You can do all kinds of things. And it, it's very easy to write your domain-specific language for solving your problem. So why doesn't everybody use it? Because proprietary companies want their programmers to program in a very specific way. And the yeah. best way to control them is to give them an opinionated language and say, use this language and this library and make sure all your function names start with a capital letter and use camel case and put the curly brace on a separate line or whatever the rule is that they have for how you should express yourself creatively as a problem solver and an analyst when you're a programmer. Yeah, yeah. I'm a terrible employee. Do not hire me. <laughs> that's that's a very high that's a very high recommendation actually. <laughs> so, you know, 
I, I was a terrible student. I was I'm not a bad employee. Maybe I was. I, I don't remember. Uh, but I was not a good. I was not a good student. Uh, but I learned a lot. So there you go. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So the, our audience here. It's a mix. I think we have people who are very, very technical, probably followed us here from Linux Journal or, or somewhere similar. And we have a lot of people who aren't. You know, I think people listen to us to talk to, you know, hear about the sort of broader privacy issues, and 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 we talk a lot about kind of security for everybody and, and that kind of stuff. So, so to those people, apologies. <laughs> But, yeah. but for the super nerds, I feel like we've got to say something about Bash, right? I mean, we've got to. We didn't really talk about it. I mean, we didn't ask any questions or anything. But um, Bash yeah. did not fall by the wayside, it turns out. So, no, yeah. gosh, no, no. That's, <laughs> no, uh, is, did you expect it to? Maybe that's an. Oh no, no. I so um, uh, I don't know if you remember. At some point, uh, maybe ten years ago or something, the shell shock. I mean, I need to show you this. <laughs> for the. This, yeah, this thing's in my office, and for the, for the people who can't hear, what I'm holding up is something that looks like My Little Pony. Everybody thinks it's a little brony thing or whatever, and that's not what it is. What it is, in fact, is called a Pony Award, P-W-N-Y. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah. And the Pony, yeah, yeah. Award, the Pony Award is given, uh, they give Pony Awards for various things having to do with bugs, you know, having to do with, the, like, the the most significant bug or the best solution to a bug or whatever. Okay. So um, uh, Jay Freeman was at a conference in Vegas and they were giving out the ponies. They were giving out some ponies and they, they had an award for uh, shell shock, the most uh, obscure, the most overhyped bug of all time. <laughs> so for those of those of you who don't know, shell shock was was the fact that there's a there is a situation in which you can pass in code to a bash shell and have the bash shell execute it. There is a possibility of doing that. And then somebody said, well, what if the bash shell happens to be the thing that you're using to run your website? Then maybe somebody on the internet could make the thing that's running your website execute code and that would be very dangerous so think about this the whole internet could explode because we could make everybody do that and then there was this massive hype about how that would be possible i mean obviously no one really uses bash to run their website and the ones that do deserve to be exploited that's a separate <laughs> issue entirely okay so the most overhyped bug so he stood up and said look i'm not here i'm not the guy but i know the guy and he's not here so i i, I can <laughs> Now, now when shell shock happened, uh, the New York Times called me, and they they said, you know, we want to talk to you about shell shock. I said, okay, great. And they said, and this wasn't. I mean, I don't I don't remember when shell shock was. I can look it up. Maybe it was six years ago, five years ago. So so they they said to me, you know, shell shock is this thing that you know it can it can change websites all over the internet. Now I wrote Bash in '87. 1987. <laughs> that's before the internet. <laughs> okay. There was no such thing as a website in 1987. So the New York Times is asking me, you know, what did you what did you think about this? The fact that this bug can be used on these websites and everything, you know. And I said, <laughs> my plan worked. <laughs> and then they printed that. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> so wow. Funny. Yeah. So that's my that's my. 
one of my favorite bash stories of all time is that that I got the New York Times to print, aha, my plan worked, about a piece <laughs> of software that I wrote in 1987 that here it was 30 years later <laughs> or more than 30 years later, and they were saying, yeah, well, we're not sure if uh, you knew about this bug. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. This is a... Well, I, I was I, thinking... I Sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead, go ahead, Catherine. I was going to say, I do feel like I have, um, I have to ask one question that is actually sure. from one of my favorite that. coworkers because I was like, hey, guess who I get to talk to? And uh, and he said, well, ask him what he thinks about. Okay, I'm going to get this wrong, and never going to become a moron. But it, some people call it Zish, some people call it Zsh. Oh, Zsh. Uh huh. Yeah, Zsh. See, I always call it Zsh, and then the cool kids are like Zish, and I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm not cool. Um, but that's fine. It's like part of a word. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, uh, you know, it's fun. I'm totally not cool. But um, I do like really good champagne, but that's a later conversation. Anyway, so ZSH. Um, yeah, I mean, do you see it kind of like, like, what do you think? Is, is it kind of, is it to bash as bash was to born? Or is there, you know, I don't oh. know. What do you think? No. No. No, ZSH, ZSH is a fine shell but it is not the same kind of thing that Bash was to born. That Bash was written because we needed a 100% free clean room implementation of a born shell that would execute every born shell script that ever existed. And we wanted this to be the shell that people would sit down and type at. So we knew it had to have um, useful user interface features like completion and history and all kinds of things like that. So uh, job one was reproduce and be, be able to execute every born shell script faithfully. And then job two was make it fun for people to use. And I don't think ZSH had those same goals in mind. I think it has different goals in mind and I don't have any problem. By the way, I wanna be very clear about this. I do not think Bash is necessarily the best shell. I think it's really good at the thing that it does, which is be a born shell and have some user interface features. I think it's quite good at that. But it's not that I think it's better than other shells as far as, you know, on any random scale. It's just good at that thing that it does. Um, ZSH is a completely fine shell. I have a huge problem with Apple, who stopped promoting the use of uh, Bash, the, the industry standard shell that runs all the scripts that everybody has been writing to run on the Mac. They decided they, they didn't want to support GPL v3. So the only Bash they have on their system is one that was licensed under v2. So I think it's from 1994 or something. You know, it's not, it's not a very new shell. Um, and then they said, now we're going to make ZSH be the default shell for new people and bash will not be the default shell. And I was like, you know, they, they're welcome to do anything they want, but I really think the reason they chose for that was the wrong one. And if they had said, we want ZSH to be the default shell for everybody because we think it's better than bash, I would have been a hundred percent on board with that decision. Mm. <laughs> like that's a fine opinion for you to have. Other people might have a different opinion. You have your opinion, that's fine, right? Not a problem. But to, but to make it be the shell because they didn't want to use GPL v3 licensed software on their systems is ridiculous and, a, right. and bad. 
bad, bad, bad apple, bad, bad, <laughs> bad apple down. What is so? What is Go the home. best show? If it's not bad. <laughs> Sorry, a little self-deprecating. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Scheme Shell's pretty good. That's pretty cool. <laughs> but I don't like. I said, by the way, I, it's not that I have a problem with ZSH. I think ZSH is a fine shell, and I think people who use ZSH day in and day out probably get tremendous value out of that tool. And I'm very happy that an open source, free software tools such as ZSH exists and is being maintained. It's wonderful. So is FSH is a good shell. So ASH is a good shell. These are these are all reasonably, you know, reasonable tools to use. The, the reason for using Bash, as I said, is, is it's 100% born compatible. It is by definition a POSIX shell because I was part of the reason, part of the definition of what is a POSIX shell. It, it, it is, by definition, a POSIX of 100% POSIX correct shell. So if you write scripts that are 100% POSIX correct, Bash will definitely 100% execute them faithfully. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if it's true for the other shells that we've mentioned. It could be, and I, might, and I don't know that. I just don't know. But I know for a fact that Bash is. When blockchain showed up, like on, on day one, what, how did it hit you? Well, so I didn't really become aware of Bitcoin until 2012. I didn't even know it existed until my good friend Ed Gamble said to me, hey, look at this Bitcoin thing. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this thing looks amazing. Um, uh, and then it wasn't until 2017 that I started exploring kind of modern blockchain and what that meant because I needed that as a solution for the uh, ORCID network. And that mm. was in 2017. Um, so it's not that I'm a blockchain aficionado, but I can tell you what I see. And what I see is a very strong and powerful movement of technical people who are um, interested in changing the world and who are uh, utilizing the, the power and freedoms that come with open source and free software in order to make that happen. And that makes me very excited. I see the movement of blockchain, the, the movement of the technology of blockchain to be um, a, a brand new step in kind of the, the technology growth of humanity as a whole. The same way cell phones were a step in the growth of the humanity in the same way that that having a computer in your house, everybody having a computer or a computer in your pocket um, uh, was is, is a, you know, a harbinger of the next things to come. And I think that this is this is an excellent uh, time to be alive. And I'm really wow. glad that I made it through the Internet and into blockchain. So fantastic. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for all of the people who have listened through this entire <laughs> thing because they couldn't stop because we were so interesting and entertaining. Hey, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you yeah, so much for having me.